Okay, Jesse, we had a serious double life story last week. What is the story this time around? The marriage between an artistic attorney and a popular professor eventually erodes into adultery, financial secrets, horrible accusations, and a bitter divorce and custody battle. The fight comes to an end the day before Halloween 2004 when one member of the marriage is killed in cold blood. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about sisters, misters, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. As always, I love seeing your reviews, guys, and we are still doing Stickers, I think we have a like a pretty Halloween-y one that we could send out too. So screenshot your five-star reviews, send them to the show, either through DM or email, lovers at lovemurder.love, and we will give you a little till love murder do us part skeleton sticker. And if you wanted to get more goodies, you can head on over to Patreon and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash lovemurderpod. There you can learn all about the different tiers of support and what you earn at each level. And here comes one of the fun things that you get. You want to throw it in, Jess? Yes. Thanks to Amanda P., one of our lovely patrons, we will be doing a love murder paint and sip for the usual happy hour this month. It will actually probably be the happy hour will be the day after I think this comes out. (laughs) Yep. You can still get in if you guys join today, but also... We might be doing this again. I think it would be really fun to do a Valentine's Day one, to be honest, with like a very love murdery canvas because this one's a little more spooky. It's spooky. I think a holiday one could be fun too in December. Yes. And we'd like to thank the amazing patrons that joined this week. Linda B., Lanessa K., and Jess K., Kimberly S., Autumn M., and Tara D., and J.S. Welcome, everybody. We can't thank you enough for your support. We are also so excited to say thank you to those who have contributed to our October fundraising campaign for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Yep, this month is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, so we're raising money for an organization that has done a lot of good. So if you want to support, you can find links to donate on our Instagram profile or our Facebook page, and we finally got those photos up of us running our (laughs) respective 5Ks and half marathons across the country and my thighs just finally recovered this Friday. Oh my gosh. So I guys, I used to run like full marathons in my 20s. And the last two full marathons I ran, I went out like all night afterwards, like dancing, drinking, partying, took a bath then, felt great the next day. When I did the Boston Marathon, I was literally bartending the next day. So crazy. A little bit different at 39, doing a half. I was taken out of commission the next day. Yeah. (laughs) But we're going to do it again next year. I got two hours and four minutes. It was more like two hours and technically four minutes, but right under five minutes. The announcer was like, coming in under 205. And I was like, oh shit, I better go. 
So next year, I'm going to try to get under two. We'll see how that goes as I will be actually 40 next year. (laughs) And possibly bogged down by me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you run with me, I'm not staying with you. You got to keep up. (laughs) There's no way. Andy's the friend who would like definitely slow down to run with her friend in solidarity, cross the finish line holding hands. And I'm like, eat my dust. (laughs) (laughs) It's way more fun together. (laughs) Yeah, as long as you can run nine minute miles. (laughs) All right, that's enough about running. Let's get into today's story. This was one that has been recommended quite a few times. And I'm sorry, I cannot shout out everybody because again, my bookkeeping in that regard is terrible. However, I did have the foresight to actually write the person who recommended this book in the book. That's awesome. (laughs) So Letitia D., thank you very much. I wrote your name in this book. And so therefore, you get the shout out. But thank you to everyone who recommended it. I think that we should jump right in. Let's do it. The early six o'clock hour was still dark in the quiet Richmond, Virginia suburb where Fred Jablin and Piper Roundtree had lived together in love and then in hatred, where they had raised children and celebrated birthdays and milestones, and where their marriage had eventually come undone. It was October 30th, 2004, a chilly Saturday morning the day before Halloween, when shots rang out in the upscale neighborhood characterized by massive oak trees and well-kept brick homes. One day later, and daylight savings time would have begun, which means... A morning at 6.37, 6.45 would have been brighter. Perhaps someone could have seen something. They could have seen who was running around the neighborhood, where somebody had been shot. But as it was not yet daylight savings time, it was completely pitch dark when these shots rang out. So a neighbor did call 911. And at that point, the dispatch asked the neighbor who called, are you sure it wasn't just a car backfiring? And this particular neighbor was ex-military. And he said, no, I know what a gunshot sounds like. And this was a very nice residential area. It wasn't near anywhere where people would be hunting, really. So it was unusual. So three uniformed officers did come out to the neighborhood. But again, it was still pitch black. So they had flashlights and they were looking, but this was just kind of a noise. No one knew exactly where or if something or someone had been shot. So they didn't really know where to look. Yeah. So they looked for about an hour, it would seem, a little less perhaps. And then they got back in their cars and said, I don't know. I don't see anything going on. There's nothing suspicious here. So... I'm not entirely sure if it was the same neighbor who called the 911 or another neighbor who heard it, but these other neighbors ended up walking their dog and they kind of were patrolling the area while they were walking their dog after the police left. And by now, the sun had come up and they were able to see something that was more horrifying than any other Halloween decoration ever could be. Among the carved jack-o'-lanterns and I guess there was these ghosts flying, like kind of bedsheet type ghosts on clotheslines, there was also a real human being who was lying murdered in a driveway. Oh my God. Yes. Somebody had been shot to death. And this person was a beloved parent, a sibling, and a friend. So this discovery would shake two families and this quiet, safe community to the core. And the investigation would show just how bad love can turn. 
Today's episode is a tale of sisterly love, terrible betrayals, and an unquenchable desire for revenge. In the end, we will discuss if the right perpetrator was implicated and who else may or may not have gotten away with murderous plotting. I was actually listening to this audiobook, which is our main source today, Die My Love by Catherine Casey, when Echo was at gymnastics. Oh my God, no way. <laughs> Catherine Casey is great. We've done a couple of her books before. I think that I might have some cases that we will be using her as a primary source again. She's kind of to Texas what Anne Rule is to the Pacific Northwest. Okay. That's her territory. I also read some articles that I will make sure to put in the show notes. There's a Dateline episode called Murder on Hearthglow Lane. There's a 48 Hours episode called Two Wigs, A Gun and a Murder. Two Wigs? Two Wigs. There's also a Scorned Love Kills episode that is also called Two Wigs and a Gun. So that's a bizarre little morsel of foreshadowing for you, Andy. Yep. So let's start by talking about the couple in question and see how the marriage began and then how it got so ugly. So Frederick Fred Jablin was born to a loving Jewish family in a working class suburb of New York City in 1952. From the time he was little, he knew he wanted to go into the sciences and also perhaps academia. He apparently had a neighbor who was a scientist and would leave the house every day in a white lab coat. And... Little Fred was completely mesmerized by this and said that he wanted to be a similar type of person when he grew up. And he followed his passion into high school where he worked in a reverse engineering lab, which sounds really fun. It was the type of lab where you took things apart to figure out how they worked. Fred was very hardworking. He worked as a janitor to put himself through college at SUNY Buffalo and then went on to obtain a master's in communication at University of Michigan. That was where he met his first wife, a graduate student named Marie, and the two married in 1974. They were pretty young. Fred was only 22 years old at that time. Fred next achieved a doctorate in organizational communication, which was an emerging field at the time. Fred was mentored by this guy, W. Charles Reddy, who is considered the father of organizational communication. And if you're wondering what organizational communication is, I did have to look it up. And it turns out it is basically exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> it's something that studies the structure of communication within organizations. And it can be corporations. It can be nonprofits. It could be even how we structure communication within governments. And this was a new field that people were thinking of. And I mean, it's anything far-reaching as intercompany communication, but also the most effective ways to hire to figure out who would be most effective in a position, like how we can structure different ways of motivation, almost everything that has to do with a very different type of communication. Fred was very practical. He was very concerned with morals and ethics, and he also believed that justice and reason would eventually prevail in his worldview. And some of his colleagues said that he could be kind of rigid about his belief system, but then there was that optimism in him that believed ultimately justice and reason would win out. Unfortunately, they said that's not always the way life works out. He seemed like a real pragmatist. For instance, when his first marriage was not working out, when he and Marie realized that they were growing apart and they wanted different things, 
Even though they still had a fairly decent relationship, they agreed to amicably divorce because they figured it was much easier to separate at this time in their lives before they had children and jointly owned property, which is just such a reasonable way to go about it. Like, look, it it appears we're growing in different ways. Let's get out before we have things that are going to tie us together for the rest of our lives. So smart. Yeah, so he was very pragmatic about that breakup, but he also was still saddened by it. Fred was definitely the guy that was looking for a life partner. Fred got a great teaching position at University of Texas at Austin, and he began to make a very good career there. He published 13 articles in scholarly journals in just his first five years. Wow. Yeah, so he was busy. I think Fred got some balance in his life in Austin, too. He was definitely no longer the work and no play guy, which I think he had been in more of his career because Austin is fun. All of a sudden, he's going out. He was living in Harper's Ferry. He had a bunch of colleagues that were the same age and similar to him. He was known to have these parties that were not wild by any means, but he would smoke pot with his students and other professors and they would discuss ideas. It felt just like a great renaissance period in his life. And he's also single at this point, which he hadn't been for almost his entire career. And they said that before he got to Austin, he just kind of went home and hung out with his wife. So this was just a really opening time in Fred's life. It's also like the end of the 70s in Austin. Yeah. So that must have been fun. Austin is really fun. Austin's great. It was so funny. I was looking up where the slogan, like, keep Austin weird came from. And the guy who is the one who's attributed to having said the quote on a radio show, I believe, and that's where it started, said that he imagined the weirdest time in Austin would be the late 70s. He's like, but I said that because I was in my 20s and everyone thinks that their 20s is the best time. (laughs) But it was almost exactly when Fred was having this experience in Austin and loving it. In the fall of 1981, a colleague introduced Fred to a bright and inquisitive senior student named Piper Roundtree. Piper had actually taken one of Fred's classes the previous year, but it had been one of those giant lecture classes with over 100 students. So he hadn't really taken a great amount of notice to her, even though she was a very good-looking girl. But she clearly had noticed him. Later, she described herself as a typical neophyte who looked up to the brilliant teacher. She said he was absolutely amazing as a teacher. And when these two became reacquainted, now more as peers because she was not taking any of his classes during her last semester or two, Fred certainly took notice of her this time. Fred was eight years older than Piper, so he was 29 to her 21, I believe, at this point when they met. Okay. And he was no longer her professor. So ethically, it was okay for them to date, which I imagine is another part of him finally noticing her because ethically, he wouldn't have dated her when she was a student. Yeah, it's so much better that they're meeting on these terms. Yes. The colleague who introduced them because apparently he was supposed to be going to some event with Piper, and then he couldn't make it. So he's like, Fred, do you want to go in my place with this senior student? And that's when they connected. Said, that was the beginning. From that point on, from their first meeting, Fred and Piper were infatuated with each other. And then he paused and he said, that will always be with me, that I was the one who introduced them and started it all. Bum, bum, bum. In a bad way? 
<laughs> Take it as you will. This seemed like a case of opposites attract. While Fred was a serious and pragmatic academic, Piper was a passionate and temperamental free spirit who loved art and animals and was considered more stereotypically attractive compared to Fred. She was like this tiny little package, probably not more than 100 pounds, they said. She was a runner. She had kind of this mischievous, very pretty face. She was dark-haired, but she would dye her hair blonde later on. Just a very cute and a lot of charisma, let's say. And Fred was very thin, balding. He was like to the T kind of a professorial type. He was already balding at 28? He was already balding at 29 when they met, yes. So it was gone, the hair. (laughs) I would say that he did look all eight years, if not more, older than Piper. Just the way he, like, carried himself and everything. Exactly. It's also personality type. When people say, like, wow, they seem so young, yes, there's genetic and physical reasons for that, the quality of one's skin, but it's a lot also in how people carry themselves and the energy they project. And he had that academic, professorial, like, in-charge attitude. Piper was a Texas girl through and through. She was the youngest of five siblings who were born to a homemaker and an Air Force surgeon. And they had moved around quite a bit, but because Piper was the youngest, mostly she remembered living in South Texas in a small town that was near the Mexican border. And I guess that they had been in that area, their father's side of the family, for three or four generations. Piper told people that her paternal grandfather had been married five times and allegedly one of his wives was Jesse James, the famous outlaw's sister. Wow. (laughs) So cool. Now, Piper did have some trauma growing up. It sounds like her father was a complex man. He was a surgeon and he saw combat and... As a result of trauma I'm sure he experienced, he was an alcoholic and he was very absent during a lot of their upbringing. There was also an experience in which after a hurricane, her father took her out onto this beach near Padre Island and they were examining the wreckage from, I believe it was Hurricane Beulah. And she was only seven years old and she was underneath this house on stilts looking at everything and the house collapsed on her. She ended up breaking several bones. It was unbelievably traumatic. So she had gone through that and then... Was her dad with her? He wasn't in the house. He managed to get her out of the house and then straight to the hospital, obviously. Only two years after that, when she was nine years old, her father had a very bad stroke and this seemed to affect his personality. At that point, he and Piper's mother started living separately. So I don't believe that they ever got legally divorced. I believe that after the stroke, it wasn't that he required any special care. It was just like he was a different person. And so he went to live somewhere alone. And at that point, Piper's mother took over being the one who financed the family. And she started a career in real estate But at that point, she was very busy. She had five kids to feed. And she was never really around anymore. So Piper would later say that her sister, Tina, who was eight years older than Piper, was more of a parent to her than her parents had been. 
She was like a mom, a best friend. Tina was pretty much Piper's world and vice versa. One of Piper's friends said that Tina and Piper were closer than any sisters they had ever seen. Tina herself said the following. The thing is that Piper and I are closer than ordinary sisters. We're soul sisters. We are incomplete without each other. As children, my mother made me sleep in bed with Piper. Even as adults, we frequently slept together. We were so close, it just felt right. I love her so much. It was like we were part of each other. So this is a very deep relationship between the two of them. I feel like in some ways, Tina feels proud and responsible for Piper like a parent would because she was, if you think about it, 10 years old when she was two. And then by the time she was nine and Tina was already 17 years old, she was kind of left without parents, even though her parents were technically still alive. So I think that Tina tried to stay close by. She would come back from college and hang out with Piper and all of her friends. It was a close relationship. In high school, Piper was that girl. She was the most popular girl who also was top of her class, National Honor Society, on the homecoming court. But she also volunteered at a hospital. She also participated in very, very early environmental causes, which was just like this is the 70s, so it's the dawning of environmental causes, really. She was involved in everything. She had a lot of personality in a tiny little package. So she ended up going on to University of Texas, where her older brother, who became an attorney eventually, and her sister Tina had gone. And that was where, at UT, she eventually met and fell in love with Fred. Within only a month or two of meeting, Piper and Fred had moved in together, and the relationship got very serious very fast. Oh my God. I couldn't imagine if my kid was a senior at college and like moved in with one of the professors. <laughs> you know, I, honestly, if one of my kids did that, I'd be like, ah, seems right. Seems like something they do. Tracks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tracks. <laughs> it would be more surprising to you because Echo's going to be like hanging out with like some rock band that doesn't even go to the college. That would track. That would track. You'd be like, ah, unsurprising. <laughs> so it seems like they both got something from the other person. Piper definitely needed someone to take care of her, it sounds like. She was the youngest of five. She had had a lot of trauma in her early life. Sounds like Tina had always taken care of her. Seemed like she really did need somebody older and wiser to handle her life and her business and give her stability, both emotionally and financially. And for Fred, she had this bright enthusiasm for life and she was spontaneous and she was fun. And he was apparently huge on Halloween. That was his favorite holiday. And they would throw these massive parties and get dressed up. And she was right there with him with just wanting to enjoy the craziness of life. A colleague of Fred's who worked with him at this time said that it seemed like he was really overjoyed to have somebody like Piper in his life. She said, Fred took pleasure in the relationship. I think he sometimes looked at Piper and pinched himself. Sometimes he thought that she was too good for him, that she was so beautiful, and he was so lucky to have found her. Oh, Yeah, I think they were both lucky, though. I don't know yet. Uh, well, <laughs> maybe not. Where the story is going, maybe this was a deeply unlucky thing for both of them. Yeah, I don't know if I can believe you yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could have gone another way. It really could have. I think that the backstory is kind of long on this one, guys, just because they're married for almost 20 years before things really go sideways. 
but you can see all the little pieces, the building blocks, that what's happening to contribute to this breakdown is very love murdery. And that's what I realized about our podcast, Andy, is that it's not so much about the actual crimes as it is about telling the stories and all the little details of what contributed to those crimes occurring. Yeah, absolutely. I tell people that all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird. It's like a true crime podcast that's less about the crime and more about the, the human frailties and mistakes and tragedies that we all experience that can lead us to a moment where violence can happen. So Fred was not the only person who thought that maybe he was the lucky one in the relationship. The couple did go on to get married on October 13th, 1983, which is today as of this recording. I did look it up. Randomly, it was Thursday, October 13th, not Friday the 13th, like today is. So it's a random date to get married on. Piper was 23. Fred was 31. But 13th of October is spooky, no matter what, even if it's not a Friday. It's a spooky date, yeah. But again, they really liked Halloween, so this kind of all tracks. But it was a very small ceremony hosted at a friend's house. Tina, Piper's sister, would later say on 48 Hours, I was always disappointed that she married Fred because I always thought she would marry someone who was more successful, someone who's interesting, someone who was funny. He is not. Wow. Tina feels strongly against Fred. Yes. And I think that was a bit rough because both Piper and other people who knew Fred thought he was very funny and said he had a great dry wit. So Tina was just not on the team. She did not like Fred. And it seems like whether it's because Fred knew she didn't like him or whether he just didn't like how very, very, very close the two of them were and how Tina could be controlling over her little sister. He probably had to tread lightly around her all the time. Yeah, he didn't like her either. He didn't like how obsessed Piper was with her siblings and her family and the Roundtree name, which comes from some place in England where there's like some, I don't know, there was some Round story trees. about, yeah, there's some stories about some mythical herb or something involved in their family. She just thought that this was all a very special line, a special family, despite the fact that she had had problems with her parents growing up. And I think that it was largely in part due to her fierce love and loyalty to Tina. So yeah, they're not big fans of each other. And I have to say, Fred really picked up a lot of the emotional slack, if not the labor of the household and the financial issues early on in their relationship. Piper had started law school, which was around the same time that they got married. That semester was when she was first in law school, and that's when they got married. But he was the one who had helped her get into law school, get accepted. He was paying her tuition. And Piper was struggling. She was struggling with law school in general. It was not coming easy to her. And Fred would later say that he didn't realize at the time, and she had not told him before they got married, she'd already been diagnosed with ADD at that point. And he also felt, though Piper would never confirm this, that she had bulimia as well. So he said that there was a couple issues in her life that he had not been aware of until after they got married and she started getting stressed out in law school and these issues were exacerbated. Yeah, stress can totally trigger both of those issues. Yes, and she was prescribed fentermine for her ADD, which is traditionally known as a diet drug. 
But I looked it up and apparently it is an off-label use. So she's like using this diet drug. She's stressed out. He claimed at the time that she was struggling with an eating disorder. Things seemed hard. It got so hard that he actually rented out the house that they were living in that he had bought years before in Harper's Ferry. And he moved them to San Antonio where her law school was. And they had originally planned for her to do the commute because he was teaching in Austin and her schedule was less rigorous. But she was getting so stressed out and complaining that with the 80 mile commute, she didn't have enough time to study. So he moved to San Antonio for the years that she was in law school so she would have time to focus on her studies. I feel like that's kind of good. Like, I think that's great. I mean, if he's able to do it and he apparently it never dropped the ball at all on his career. He said that he was able to think and like conceptualize things during his 90 minute ride each way. And he was just wanted to help Piper get through this hard patch in her life. It was clear that he was a very devoted husband and he was committed to her succeeding. Piper did end up graduating law school in 1986, but she was not in the top of her class. She was kind of just like clinging to the middle slash bottom. And that's hard because obviously the more desirable positions will go to the people that are graduating at the top of their class. And she's used to being top of her class. She's also very used to that. I mean, this is a problem we talk about, and it's why all the children's book talk about building grit and resilience and, you know, how you're supposed to compliment them on how they tried again and they tried hard and not just how talented they are. And it's kind of like somebody like Piper who's just naturally good at things her whole life, and then when she actually has to work for something, it seems overwhelming. So they moved back to Austin after she was done with law school. And it did take her a little while to get a job. She was also very artistic, though. And apparently she was painting these watercolor landscapes that were very beautiful. So Fred got her an agent and she actually sold quite a few paintings. So she was making some money off of her art while she was looking for an attorney gig. So cool. Yeah, it's always interesting to me when you find somebody that has both that left brain, right brain thing. Like, able to be an attorney and have that structured mindset, but also an artist. She did eventually get a job with the Hayes County District Attorney's Office, but she was fired less than a year later. Now, this is a point of contention. Fred says that she was fired, and Piper claimed that she had actually quit because she didn't feel safe, that somebody had once pulled out a gun during a negotiation, and she felt unsafe in the job, so she actually left. We don't really know which one was which. She did get another job as a staff lawyer for a school board, and the couple had their first child, Jocelyn, in July of 1989. And this was a big deal for them because they both wanted to have a lot of kids. Though, obviously, they were both overjoyed, Piper had pretty bad postpartum depression. And each subsequent pregnancy, it would get worse. How many kids did they have? So they ended up having three children, but she also had a pregnancy that ended in what she referred to as a therapeutic abortion because the child had very serious birth defects and the probability of it living independently was very poor. So they had to make that, I mean, I can't even imagine, choice to terminate the pregnancy, which was, of course, devastating. And then we'll get into another pregnancy she had that did not end in a child later on as we move through the story. But 
all together, I think she had five or six pregnancies and three children who lived and thrived. At the time that she just had Jocelyn, though, she became very dependent upon Fred to the point where his assistants at the university would say that they thought she was very mentally unwell because she would call in the middle of him giving a lecture and scream at his assistants to put him on the phone. Or she'd scream, I fired the maid. I need him to come home. She needed him very desperately. And to the assistants, at least, these calls seemed unnecessary and hysterical. Kind of manic. Yeah. Yeah. And Fred, to his credit, would drop whatever he was doing and go home to be with his wife, for the most part, within reason. And the same assistant said to author Catherine Casey that they were surprised when they later met Piper, that she seemed so charismatic and normal and nice and loving because they had only dealt with her on the phone when she was a different type of woman. Yeah. So there's clearly already starting to be issues in their marriage. I think they're like six years in at this point and they have one child. And as we know, with more children and more time and more responsibility and more money issues, things don't get easier. No. It did not help that Piper kind of continued to strike out professionally. She did get pregnant with their second baby, Paxton, a little boy. And she was working at that time at a big name law firm. She'd quit the school board position or she'd been fired. I'm still not entirely sure. And she had started at a fancy law firm. And then again, she was fired. So she was angry about this because she was pregnant with her second child at this time. And she went to, I think, the Texas Labor Board, and she was planning on suing the law firm because she said that she was being discriminated against because she was pregnant. And the law firm said, yeah, no, they had the receipts. They said she wasn't showing up to work. She was absent. She was not meeting any of her deadlines. She was performing terribly. And so they had enough evidence to prove that it was performance-based and had Nothing to do with her pregnancy. Yeah. So she didn't sue them after all. As Piper continued to strike out professionally and then later suffered what I was talking about with the therapeutic abortion with the baby that likely would not have lived for much longer after birth, it became clear that they needed a change. Her work was stressing her out. They had lost that pregnancy very late in the pregnancy. All around, it was just very high stakes. Now, Fred would say that he knew that he needed to give Piper a break. She needed a chance to just be a mom to Jocelyn and Paxton because they were her number one priority and that he needed to find a better paying position so he could support the whole family and she could be with her children. So that's how he would characterize the move that they eventually made to Virginia when he got a job with University of Richmond. However, Tina would later claim that he was doing this to isolate Piper, to get her away from Texas, away from her family. It is unclear how much Piper wanted this move. It sounds like at this point she really, really wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. She said that losing that third pregnancy put in perspective what was important, and that was her family. So... Maybe she wanted it. Maybe she was just sad about not being close to her family anymore. And she did have a tough time in Virginia, even though she was now focusing on being a stay-at-home mom. 
it was not an easy time when she first got to Virginia. First of all, Piper kind of stuck out in more conservative Virginia. She, at the time, I think had like dyed blonde hair. She liked to wear skin tight jeans and cowboy boots. This is more of a late 80s, early 90s kind of preppy community, that aesthetic. So the big hair cowboy boots was not really Virginia in this area's thing. So she definitely seemed out of place with what she described as the Stepford Wives in this community. And soon after they moved there, she got pregnant again, but it was an ectopic pregnancy. For those of you who might not know, that's when a pregnancy forms in a fallopian tube instead of in the uterus, and it can be deadly to the mother because it can rupture your fallopian tube and you can die. And she had to have emergency surgery. At that time, the doctors said that it was unlikely that she would be able to conceive again. I was just going to say, yeah. But it happened six months later. As you guys know from the stories on our show, the world gives you enough to worry about without having to worry about B.O. as well. That's why we're so excited to tell you about Lumi, whole body deodorant. It's clinically proven to control odor everywhere. And they do mean everywhere. For a full 72 hours. You know it. As an OBGYN, Lumi's founder, Dr. Shannon Klingman, met thousands of women concerned with odor below the belts. Through clinical testing, she found that the real culprit wasn't our wonderful lady bits, but bacteria on the skin. So she created Lumi, a skin-safe, aluminum-free deodorant that actually works and works everywhere with over 150,000 five-star reviews to prove it. Oh my gosh, I love this stuff. Actually, I really like the cream tube deodorant, which I did not think was going to be my thing, but it is so perfect for going to the gym. I'm obsessed with the travel wipes. Oh, travel wipes are everything. That's another huge gym plus because sometimes I have to run somewhere after the gym and those wipes come in so handy. It's so nice. If you guys want to find out for yourself and check Lumi out, their start pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like a mini body wash or the deodorant wipes we were just raving about, as well as free shipping. And as a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code LOVEMURDER at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumedeodorant.com and use code LOVEMURDER. Andy, I'm going to be honest, shaving has never really been my favorite thing. From gross old razors to that creepy dry skin feeling after shaving, it was honestly something I never enjoyed at all. And in fact, I was kind of thinking that it might be time to go full 1970s on my body hair. But thanks to today's sponsor, I've totally changed my tune. Totally. That's why we are very excited to talk about Athena Club. The blade on my old razor used to get all goopy after a few uses, but I love the water-activated serum on Athena Club's razors. There's just enough of it to soothe while shaving, but it never gets gunky and gross on the blade. One of the things that I love most is the magnetic hook that comes with Athena Club's razors. It's so necessary for my shower situation. I've got enough in my shower in the caddy as it stands. And this is just so genius. And it keeps my razor from falling every time I open the shower. The razor kit is only $10 and it comes with two blade heads and that nifty magnetic hook. 
And of course, there are amazing color options. I got the baby blue, but there's a really chic black one for anyone who's minimalist. And then there's a really pretty pink and purple as well. Oh, yeah. I'm like the blush pink for life. (laughs) I also love that with Athena Club, you never have to think about blade refills because you choose how often you want your replacement blades shipped to you. And you can also now find them in Target stores nationwide. So it's just so easy to swing by one of the many Target stores that you definitely have in your area that you go to. Yeah, you can grab a little Starbies while you're at it. Make it a day. Best of all, since switching, I've gotten zero razor bumps with Athena Club's razor. They also have amazing shaving cream if you are on the market for some. Switch to the better razor and show your skin you care with Athena Club. Get started today by shopping in-store at Target stores nationwide. Just head to the shaving aisle to find the razor kit, cloud shave foam, wax strips, and razor refills. After she nearly died, she said. It was wild. It's crazy. You still, my mom was missing an egg in a fallopian tube due to a similar situation when she was very young. And they told her she wasn't going to have kids, but one ovary, one fallopian tube. And even if you got a little scar tissue in the ute, maybe you can get it done. Yep. Have your little rainbow baby. You can. Yes, it's possible. There is hope. My mom had two. And then she was like, shit, we better get on birth control. And that's what happened here. And I think after Piper had their last child, Callie, who was born in 1996, that was when they decided that it was time to like be done with the babies, even though they were so thrilled with the children they had. It was just that she was also then going through a very bad postpartum depression. And you have to remember, she's away from her family at this. So she doesn't have the same support system. I think Tina even moved in with them for a while to help care for the children while she was going through treatment. It was right around the time that Callie was born in late 96 that Fred and Piper started going to couples counseling. So they were experiencing problems in the marriage at that point. They would be in and out of couples counseling for the rest of their marriage. So they're trying. I mean, two people don't go to couples counseling if they're not trying to mend this marriage and really make it work. Absolutely. Yep. It's way more than a lot of people do. Yes. And as the years go by, we get conflicting reports about how Piper was as a mother. And this is a very, he said, she said, then there's some people that are on Piper's side. There's some people that are on Fred's side. As far as the reports I read, and then, of course, people speaking to 48 Hours, it's really conflicting. And I don't think that they're actually counter to each other. Because how Piper was described was she was like a regular Martha Stewart. Like she would go out berry picking with the kids and then can her own jams and jellies. She would bake all of the breads and crackers and cookies that the kids would eat, everything from scratch. She even made dog biscuits from scratch. They had a ton of dogs. They had ferrets. She would save bullfrogs. She had a little bullfrog community in her backyard. So she's like very earth mother. She's very caring. She would take the kids on rock hunting adventures and study geology. She even would give them art lessons and tutored some of Jocelyn's friends and gave her brownie troop art lessons. But on the other hand, some neighbors complained that she was constantly trying to foist her kids off on others. Like she'd show up at a neighbor's doorstep and be like, hey, can you take my kids for a couple hours? I got to run an errand. And if they said yes, the kids would be with them all day and they would have no way to reach Piper. 
she did that so many times to different people that people were starting to just not answer the door if she was on their doorstep. I mean, what you just explained, though, seems like similar to like if we had Instagram nowadays, it would be similar to someone posting all it's like Instagram versus reality. You know what I mean? It's like she could be giving off the idea and the image to people who don't really know her or who she's not dumping her kids off to of the appearance of being this like perfect quintessential Martha Stewart type. But then in reality, the few people who are close to her know that that's not the case. Yes. And she also, I don't know, this has nothing to do with any of like her diagnoses, but it did seem like she was somebody who had a tremendous amount of energy for certain projects and certain activities that she was interested in. But the actual day-to-day of being a mother and keeping a household was not interesting for her. It's obviously like the mundane stuff of raising children and keeping a household afloat is not pretty and it's not exciting. No. And so I don't know if she she just didn't seem to have a constitution maybe for that. They also said that she had a parade of nannies who were barely qualified for the job. She would hire people who had zero experience, some people who did not speak English. They said that basically anyone, like kind of like how you'd like See if somebody's hanging around the Home Depot and if they want to work on on your house by the hour or something. Like, that's how she was picking up nannies who were taking care of her kids. So they were saying that it never worked out because obviously none of these people were qualified. But she was always looking for ways to kind of offset the care of her kids, which was at this point was supposed to be her job. Her contribution to the household was taking care of the kids. And so the family belonged to two country clubs. Now, these were called like tennis and swimming clubs, but it's a country club, basically. And there was one that Fred knew about, and that was one where they would take the kids there themselves. But that club, that tennis and swim club, did not have a daycare. So she secretly also joined, just for herself, another country club in the area. And this country club had a three-hour maximum of daycare. So essentially you could put your kids in the daycare while you took a tennis lesson or went to lunch. But they said that Piper was eventually kicked out because she kept abusing the three-hour limit and she would drop them off in the morning and say she had a tennis lesson and then she would be gone the entire day and she wouldn't be on the premises. So bad. It's really bad. Obviously she she was finding herself, I would say, stymied by motherhood, but she would never admit this. If you asked her, she was the best mom ever. She lived for her children. She was born to be a mother. Everything was for them. Everything was about them. This was not the only hubbub that Piper caused at the country clubs. She was a very fit woman. She ran a lot. She liked to exercise. And I guess she was known for wearing a thong bikini to show off her petite figure which scandalized some of the families who did not want their children apparently exposed to Piper's butt cheeks. Yeah, it's not like a country club look. That's like a beach in Mexico with your husband look. Yeah, mm mm-hmm. And I could probably even look past that. I would find it kind of amusing. But there was gossip that Piper was also having affairs with the much younger men she played tennis with. Oh, my God. When she was dumping her kids off. And we do have confirmation that Piper did seem to take at least one lover in his 20s during these years. And another person who was interviewed for Die My Love said that she gave off the impression of being 
very open and willing to have a lover. Let's just say that because there was a doctor who was interviewed for Catherine Casey's book who said that he got the impression that she was on the lookout for a new man in her life. And he said when Piper had an appointment, she flirted with him until he had to issue a standing order. From that point on, a female nurse was in the examination room with them at all times. And he said, I had the feeling Piper would cross the line. I didn't want her to have the opportunity. Wow, smart man. Yes. Oh, gosh. Some neighbors also reported that Piper started drinking too much. She even introduced herself to a neighbor's visiting father as the neighborhood drunk. She said, I'm Piper. You might know me as the neighborhood drunk. They would see her because it's a smaller suburban community where the backyards are right next to each other. And they would see her drinking wine alone in her backyard. And her eldest child would have to come out and be like, what are we having for dinner? And she'd tell her to put some frozen dinners in the microwave. So things weren't going great. And I also think that... Piper will later say it's because Fred was never around. Obviously, if she's the only one at dinner and Fred's not there making dinner either, he's clearly working. I think he was working longer hours in Richmond as opposed to Texas because he had more responsibilities. Yeah, they have three kids. Yeah, but I I think so. her complaint during this time was that he was never around and he was only parenting on the weekends and she was in charge of everything and it was overwhelming. But it also sounds like, well, she seems to know how to ask for help from Fred. She maybe needed a little bit more help than was being given in general because this does not scream coping well. (laughs) Does not scream, I'm fine. No, and I think everyone who has raised very young children, especially if you have three or more, can relate to some feelings of being overwhelmed, especially at that dinner, bath, bed hour. Wow. It's rough, but it seemed like most of us don't have affairs and develop alcohol issues. <laughs> so, so it's like, it's like the, it's like, it's a relatable feeling, but the execution of dealing with it is not great. Yep. Piper began seeing a psychiatrist. So yay, getting some help. And this psychiatrist confirmed her previous diagnosis of ADD as well as depression And he also believed that she suffered from alcohol abuse and a mood disorder. Ugh, man. She began to take a pretty heavy cocktail of Adderall, Prozac, and Xanax to manage her various issues. And I'm very certain that she was continuing to drink on this too, which can be very dangerous. She also confided in her psychiatrist that she had taken a younger lover. So that's how we have confirmation that she was sleeping with a man in his 20s. She also said that she had begun an emotional affair. She was having a non-sexual but intense relationship with a man she described as a match for her intellectually. Oh, okay. However, this younger man apparently betrayed Piper by having an affair with one of her friends. (laughs) I don't know if that's the law when you're having an affair. This is classic. It's like, you can't be mad at me. You have a husband. I can sleep with whoever I want. Piper at that time, I think, decided I need to focus on my marriage. This is, this is, my energy is not going to my husband in my home. It's going to these various other men and it needs to be refocused on my marriage. So the summer of 1999 was actually a good time for the marriage because Fred was home more often and he was giving Piper and their family the undivided attention that Piper craved. And when she was getting that attention from her husband, it seemed like she was less likely to seek it out from other sources. 
Okay. She had also gone through that little breakup with her maelstress. So she was committing herself to the marriage finally. So this was, for the most part, a very good summer in their, at this point, I think 16-year marriage. However, that ended soon when Fred found out that Piper had been overseeing the family's expenses. That was part of her job as the stay-at-home mom. And she'd apparently run up a $32,000 bill on their credit cards. Wow. That is more like fifty-eight dollars or $59,000 in today's money. Wow. How? She's going to the country clubs, two country clubs every month. She's got tennis equipment, tennis lessons. She's buying the best of the best for herself and the kids. Sounded like they had quite a menagerie of pets, too. And everyone who has pets knows that they aren't cheap. <laughs> There's always some shit they're getting into that you have to take them to the emergency vet for. So, yeah, they had a lot going on. Now, he was pissed at this point. He was like, this is ridiculous. And you have to remember, too, that even though she was technically a stay-at-home mom, she was hiring full-time housekeepers, maids, nannies, daycare situation. So there is a lot of money going out that he thought was unnecessary, of course. So he, for the first time ever, put his foot down. He is like, this is not going to stand anymore. I'm giving you a credit card that has a $500 limit. And I will refresh it as necessary. I'm going to be reviewing all of the bills. And also, I think that their youngest at this point was going into preschool. You need to get a job. You are a qualified attorney. Why aren't you contributing to the household? Now, this is where Tina says he was controlling. He was abusive. How dare he financially strangle hold her from Team Fred? They're saying... She was irresponsible. She was out of control. He was working so hard and he's, it's going to take him years to dig out of this financial mess. And also, he was making a good living, but he's still a professor. We're not talking about some tech billionaire over here. They don't have a lot left over when you're talking about three children in the home. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, again, the Team Piper, Team Fred. This is, is it abusive? Is he financially controlling her? Or does he have to because she's spending all of their money on crazy shit? So he's like, it's time that you take the Virginia bar because she wasn't licensed to practice in Virginia. And he tried. He paid for a law review case course so that she could get ready for the Virginia bar. He kept a full-time housekeeper on staff who would clean the home and make all the meals so that she could just focus on studying. It wasn't like he was making her do everything and get a job. Yeah, and not supporting her efforts. Yeah. Yeah, but Piper did not pass the bar. Her psychiatrist later noted that even though she didn't even really study for it and kind of just blew it off and said she just thought she'd pass, she blamed everybody else and everything else for her failure and not actually her lack of determination. <laughs> and studying. And studying. He also noted that she was like ripping through her Xanax prescriptions and he was trying to take it easy on the Xanax, but he also had fears that she might be getting it somehow outside of him writing her prescriptions because she seemed a little zonked and was asking for more and more Xanax. In late 2000, Piper missed Callie's Chuck E. Cheese birthday party. Oh, no. Yeah, and Fred seemed very embarrassed and uncomfortable because, of course, it was him and a bunch of mothers and kids. I think now dads come to all the birthday parties that I go to. But back when we were little, remember, it was just like seen as like a mom's job. 
Yeah. And so it was just him and a bunch of moms. And one of the mothers was like, well, where's Piper? And he said, oh, you know, I don't, she's not really feeling well. That's, he couldn't, he seemed like he didn't know what to say. And one of the moms said, I would have to be in the ICU to miss my child's birthday party. So obviously things aren't going great if she missed this party. Fred is getting more embarrassed and frustrated. A week after that birthday party, so this is early December because her birthday was right after Thanksgiving, a couple of neighbors received a call from Piper saying that she needed a ride home from her doctors. She seemed really out of it. When they arrived, Piper was falling down, like unconscious. And the doctors would not say what they had given her or why she was there. So they're really weirded out by this whole thing. Piper would later say that she had a really bad migraine and they had given her some sedative or something to help her or it didn't make any sense. But in any case, so it's a husband and wife, these neighbors, they go to pick her up and they said that she was in terrible condition. And now when they came to drop her off, the kids were home from school at that point. And Mel is the female neighbor and Pete is her husband. And Mel was very concerned about the kids seeing their mom in this state. Yeah, scary. She told Catherine Casey that she went into the house ahead of Pete bringing Piper in and putting her to bed and said, I just want you guys to know that your mom is okay. She's going to seem a little odd to you. The doctor just gave her some medicine that made her sleepy. And Mr. Foster is going to help bring her upstairs. But Mel said that she watched the kids' reactions as Piper was basically, like, dragged into the house. And she thought, of course, they're going to be full of questions. They're going to be frightened. They're going to be worried about their mother being so heavily medicated. But instead, she saw no reaction at all from the kids who kind of, like, rolled their eyes and just looked back at the TV that they were watching. And she said, I had the impression that they'd seen Piper like this before, and they were not surprised. Heartbreaking. Yeah, the red flags are going off for the neighbors at this point, of course. So when Piper was roused that night, she accused Fred of drugging her. What? Yes. Where was Fred even? He obviously was at work at the time that she had gotten into this state, but it sounds like maybe they had gotten into a fight because he was embarrassed about what had happened, how she had been in that state, why she had called the neighbors, because the neighbors obviously called him. And it seems like when he got home, he was upset. I think for good reason, if the person who is home with your children is so incoherent and you don't have a a reason why, you don't know why they were like that, and that now everybody in your neighborhood knows that you were like that, I can understand him being upset. And it seems like when he got upset with her, she countered that she knew it was him. He was drugging her. And I don't know how that would have occurred, but she's not really making much sense at this point. Okay. So he essentially said, I'm not going to fight with you about this. You're not well. Just get some sleep. We'll talk about it in the morning. And when he woke up in the morning, because I think they were sleeping in different rooms because they were so frustrated with each other, she was gone with their youngest, Callie. Gone. Can't get a hold of her. She's not answering her cell phone. He found out much later that she had called Tina, who was in Houston, and told Tina that Fred was drugging her, that she was severely unwell, and that She even believed he might be poisoning her. And Tina said, get Callie and come here. Because Callie was the only one. Why just? Because she was, the other kids were in school. I think Callie was still pretty young. She was like four at this point. So I also don't know. I think she was obviously still in preschool. 
So maybe in Piper's estimation or Tina's, she was the one who still needed care from her mother while the other older kids could go to school and fend for themselves. And we think it's so strange when that when that happens, when like they take they one just of the take kids one or, kid. Yeah. yeah. They can't feel good for the other kiddos. I know that the oldest, Jocelyn, had some difficulties with what was going on in her household emotionally because of all of this stuff. They were also all supposed to go to Disney World together, which Piper didn't even want to do because she thought it was like so boring and plebeian and common to go to Disney World for a vacation. But of course, all the kids wanted to go. And so she took Callie to Houston. Fred wakes up and he doesn't know where his child is, his youngest child is. He doesn't know where his wife is. Finally, he gets a call from Tina and she's like, they're not leaving. Piper's divorcing you. They're staying here in Texas. She's going to get the rest of the kids and she's going to raise them here with me. And screw you. And Fred's like, wait a minute. Hold on. First of all, I didn't drug anyone. Second of all, that's my family. You can't just take my family. And he ended up taking the oldest two kids to Disney World on the planned trip. And by the time they were done with Disney World, he actually had the whole family fly to Houston and he made up with Piper and convinced her to come back home to Richmond. Oh, my God. While also working a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Tina. Tina now, who is going to insert herself even more into this relationship because by the time Piper goes back with Fred, he thinks that it's so they can repair their marriage. Piper's scheming on how she's going to get out, take the children, and go back to be with Tina. So Tina was living in Houston where she owned and operated a woman's health clinic as a nurse practitioner. So it's her clinic and she can do all the stuff a nurse practitioner can do. And I don't know if they kept another doctor on staff, but potentially. Tina had her own troubled love life. This is the part where we do, and we need to come up with like a word for this segment, which is like tangential characters, terrible love life segment. Because <laughs> Tina is not the star of this story, but she's a main player and holy shit, did she have a screwed up love life. So she had first been married to an attorney and she had two sons with this man, but it appears that the marriage ended because she was having an affair with a gynecologist who was also married. And this man had been married for 34 years at the time that they were having this affair. Okay. So both Tina and this doctor left their marriages and got married to each other as soon as they were legally able. One week after the doctor left his wife, his wife of 34 years committed suicide. Oh, my God. Andy, you know how crazy difficult it can be to get myself to sleep. I have always been a night owl, but with school schedules and work schedules, you know, I just finished the training for the half marathon. I don't really have the option anymore of not getting sleep. And of course, the longer it takes me to fall asleep, the more it affects the next day. Well, one of the most effective tools I found in my personal toolkit throughout my journey is magnesium breakthrough. Did you know that over 75% of the population is magnesium deficient? And what most people don't know is that even if they're taking a magnesium supplement, they're still deficient because they are not getting all seven forms. Magnesium Breakthrough is the ultimate way to give your body all seven forms in just one supplement. Yes, and in addition to experiencing relaxed sleep, Magnesium Breakthrough also helps improve digestion, supports muscle recovery, and support healthy bone density. There is 
really nothing like getting better sleep to help you feel grounded and relaxed during the following day. It's truly the best. For an exclusive offer for Love Murder listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder10 during checkout to save 10%. Again, that's magbreakthrough.com slash lovemurder and code lovemurder10. Thank you so much, Magnesium Breakthrough, for supporting the show. So you can imagine how angry his grown children were that he did this to their mother and then, <sighs> and then she ended her life. They were quoted in the book as saying, before Tina Roundtree came into our lives, we had a perfect family. And obviously, if somebody has an affair, things weren't as perfect from the outset if they felt driven to do such a thing. But the kids felt like it. It was good holidays and yes. fun and love, and they were raised in a great household. Yeah, that's a hard image to keep up if the parents worked hard to keep that for them. Yes. And it seems like when it disintegrated, the wife could not take it. So the oldest child, and I'm sorry, guys, I didn't trigger warn suicide, but it's going to come up again, just so you know. The eldest child was a man named Rick, and he was so angry that he sued his father for the emotional distress for potentially causing his mother's actions. However, the lawsuit was dropped when Rick committed suicide as well. Oh, my God. Yeah. And this happened after Tina wrote her new husband's adult children a letter saying that they were all just big babies and they needed to get over it. And she's like, I know what you think. I'm some blonde bimbo who's here for your father's money, but you need to grow up, is what she essentially said to these children who had lost their mother. Wow. Yeah. The marriage between Tina and the doctor ended in divorce after only five years, which I'm sure he was realizing that he had decimated his children's lives for what? Yeah, and married Satan. Yeah, yes. She allegedly tricked her next husband, husband number three, into marrying her. This poor guy was well off, but he had cancer. He had leukemia and it seemed like the cancer had spread to his brain and he had a brain tumor. So she decided to spring a surprise trip to Vegas on him only eight days after he had brain surgery. So he thought, well, okay, maybe this will be a fun trip. And then when they arrived, she was like, surprise, we're getting married. I invited all of our friends and loved ones. I thought this would be great for you after such a trying time. Oh, my God. Well, apparently he thought, well, what the hell? Like, she's been through the last, I don't even know how long they were together. I don't think it was very long. But she had been through a lot with him early on with his sickness. He's like, maybe she is already proving in sickness and in health. However, as soon as they got home and they were married, she completely stopped taking care of him. She hired nurses to deal with him around the clock. And she would just, like, not even come home at night, he said. <sighs> yeah. So husband number three like I said, had some money, and he figured out six months into the marriage that he was pretty darn sure that she had only married him for the money. He said in his complaint when he was filing for an annulment, it is my opinion that Tina induced me into the civil marriage ceremony in Las Vegas solely for the purpose of attaining financial gain for herself without any real intent of acting as my wife. Wow. It's rough. This is a rough one because... She did still end up scoring, I think, the modern day equivalent of in the six figures from him, even though they were only married for six months. Gross. Mm-hmm. 
Well, husband number three, that's Tim Heatzig, he's the one who filed for the annulment, sadly did die six months later. So it seems very likely that that was her intent behind it because she knew how bad his diagnosis was and she was just going to cling on until he shuffled off the mortal coil. So sad. But he was on to her. So luckily he got out before she got everything after his death. Well, the same month that he died in December of 2000 was when Piper and Callie landed in Houston. Oh, my God. This is so all going on. she's moving all of her energy over to that. She is moving all of her energy over into fighting Fred and convincing Piper that it's high time to end the marriage and get custody of the kids and raise them in Texas. So when Fred brings his family home, he is recommitted to marriage counseling. He even eventually applied for a job at UT in his old department because he said he was so willing to work with Piper and to make her happy that he would quit his job in Virginia and move back to Texas so she could be closer to her family if that's what she wanted. Wow. They had been married for 17 and a half years at this point. That's a lot of history. It's a lot of love and life together. And he really wanted to make it work. But based on what Piper was up to at the same time, it did not seem like she had the same goals. <laughs> While he was trying to repair the marriage, she was trying to gather some getaway cash. Piper intercepted one of Fred's replacement credit cards. He had lost one. And when it came, the new one came in the mail, she swiped it. She also applied for more cards in his name that he didn't know about. Well, that's not really cash. Well, she started getting cash advances on the cards. Oh, my God. Yeah. So she started just ching, 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 getting the maximum cash advance she could get every single month. She also opened a new bank account and she started transferring money from his paychecks from their joint account into her new secret account. She ended up spending $7,000. I don't even know what this one is because I didn't even change that one for inflation. But seven grand in 2001 money for things like prepaid moving services, knowing that she was going to be moving back to Texas. Yeah. As well as three years of treatments at a beauty salon. <laughs> Anything she could prepaid, she was doing as well as clothing and also tennis equipment. It wouldn't be until July of 2001 that Fred would discover this betrayal. Piper then moved out of the home. She moved in with a friend who was living in Richmond who was getting a divorce. So she was still around. And it seemed like this was when they started entertaining the idea of actually getting a divorce. He's like, you're clearly trying to move on. We need to talk about this. But, you know, he was still trying to make it work. There was an email that he wrote to her at this time where he said, I realize that you and I are about as angry with each other as possible and that we are both hurting badly. First, despite all that's happened, I still care very much about you. A candle of love still remains burning, although it appears on a trajectory to burn out. Second, I miss you. Third, it is clear we have both failed one another in many respects. I guess I am looking for a miracle. You seem to believe in them and have noted that your life has never followed the norm. What my heart and soul seem to be telling me, or perhaps what you might consider my angel communicating with me, I feel convinced that we are not working out our problems in the best manner. So he is suggesting all these things. We'll move back to Texas. You can stay in the house. We'll just have different rooms. We can 
make it work. I'll take a leave of absence from my job if it means fixing our marriage. And he closed it with saying, all of this may take some kind of miracle, but miracles do happen, especially if people want them to happen. My heart and soul keep reminding me not to forget this. And I hope yours do as well. <sighs> so he's trying. And Piper was not trying. Piper started making claims of physical abuse to the police. She seemed like she was trying to start a history of calling the police so that eventually when they divorced, she would get custody of the children because there'd be a track record of the police being called because of his actions. But they don't have any evidence. They don't. And in fact, one time the police came and she was trying to point out some scratch she had, but it was like already healed. It was in a state of healing. It was clear that it didn't just happen. And so the police were like, well, it doesn't really look like you have any injuries. And she's like, well, this. And they're like, well, that looks like it maybe occurred like a week ago. And so she's like, well, my daughter will tell you. And their eldest daughter came down and she was like, uh, no, dad didn't do anything to mom. What are you talking about, mom? And so the kids are getting involved in this. Every single time that any of these incidents happened, Fred was totally cleared. The most embarrassing time was when he was arrested in front of his students when he was doing a lecture. Oh, my God. Led out of his lecture hall with handcuffs. And then obviously they, he was cleared. Yes, he was cleared. But he told Mel, the neighbor, that he felt like he was living in a bad Lifetime movie. Oh, my God. And it was about to get even more lifetime-y because the final straw came in June of 2001. So this is June, July 2001. This is when he's also discovering the credit card stuff and what's going on. Fred also discovered that Piper was having an affair with their daughter's eye doctor. <laughs> These sisters love having affairs with doctors, huh? They love having affairs with doctors. It was really bad, too, because... She was telling people that her marriage to Fred was basically over and they just hadn't done the official divorce yet, but she already had somebody in her life who was the one and that she was planning on getting married to. She was taking their children on dates with this man. That's sick. It's sick. And that was the knife in Fred's gut that finally made him turn, turn the page. He's like, we're getting divorced. That's it. This is over. He was incensed. And the weird thing was that he kind of looked like Fred, <laughs> the eye doctor. He was also bald, also thin, also wore glasses. He's like, isn't it weird that she's having an affair with a guy that looks just like me? It was very frustrating for him. Obviously, the kid part would make me really sick. And this doctor, just like her sister, was also married. And what Fred was also concerned about was that Piper was acting very unstable, very irrational. And the wife of the doctor said that she believed Piper was threatening her. She was making threatening phone calls. And she had opened her mailbox and saw a snake in her mailbox. It turns out that it was a rubber snake. It was a fake snake. But of course, the terror of opening her mailbox. Oh, my God. And it was alluded to that that was Piper's doing because she was threatening the wife to get her to divorce the husband and let him go. <sighs> this relationship did last throughout the divorce process, but then not much longer after that. I think around the time they were finally officially getting divorced, he left her and he went back to his wife. And they said that 
it became like a fatal attraction thing. She was obsessed with both of them and getting revenge. And I think that the doctor very deeply regretted his involvement with Piper. Unreal. Yes. Okay. So with all of this craziness going on, it was no wonder that Fred was going through the divorce. He also changed his will. He changed his will to make sure that his brother, Michael, it's his only brother, his older brother, who lived, I think, like an hour away also in Virginia, but not right where they lived. And he said that Michael would get custody of his children in the event of his death. That's where he wanted it to go. He said that Michael would also be the beneficiary of his estate and his life insurance policies. He additionally filed for sole physical custody of the children. He did not feel that Piper was stable enough to have the physical custody of the children, but he did not want to deny the children access to their mother. So he stipulated that the kids could be with Piper on weekends and school vacations. Great. Well, this enraged Piper. I think that this sounds like a good arrangement. She does not seem like she's doing the day-to-day mothering very well. So why not be the fun mom on the weekends? That sounds great. But she did not think so. She was hell-bent on proving she was a perfect mother. She was the best mother in the world. She was born to be a mother. This was her only priority. She had given up her career to be a mother, which we can all look at that and say, hmm, I don't know about that. What career? <laughs> Honey. Yeah. Honey, you failed the bar. You failed it. So. Yeah. <laughs> she was even more furious when the judge did award sole physical custody to Fred and the judge stipulated that Piper would have to pay child support. By this time, this is July of 2002, Piper had already moved back to Houston to be closer to her family and Tina in particular. And she was licensed to practice law in Texas. Yeah. Because she had passed the bar there. And if she doesn't have the kids full time, what are you doing? Yes. The judge said, you don't have physical custody of the children. You are living in Texas, a place where you can practice law. You're going to have to pay child support. So she was ordered to pay $890 a month in child support. Nothing if you're a lawyer. Yeah. But she didn't have a job at that time. So she's like, what do I do? And she tried to file for bankruptcy. It looked like she tried to file for bankruptcy twice or three times. And the court just kept saying, no, just get a job. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So she started falling behind in her child support payments. And both she and Tina definitely hated Fred with a burning passion at this point. Piper had always considered herself just a perfect mother before anything else in her world. And in her opinion, Fred had done this to hurt her. He wasn't thinking about the children. Tina was saying she was the one who was always there for them. And all of a sudden, he's just doing this to hurt her. He's trying to psychologically win over her by taking away the thing that she loves most in the world, her children. Yeah. So that's how they're looking at it. They're looking at it as the children are a pawn in a game that Fred is playing. Everyone on Fred's side, including many of the neighbors and the other parents of the kids that they were friends with, you know, the school children and everything, saw Fred as being an extraordinary father who was at every sporting event, who was there to put them at the bus when they're all standing outside and they're waving and having their coffee. It was Fred who was out there putting the kids on the bus. So these are contradictory reports about how Fred was as a father and what his motivations are here. 
based on Catherine Casey's book and her investigation into this, she wholeheartedly believes that Fred was an amazing father. Okay. <sighs> so, but from their opinion, Fred's this horrible, controlling, abusive man who is also psychologically abusing the children, Tina would claim, because he would lose his temper and scream at them, is what Tina said. I don't understand how Tina has this, like, magic ball portal visibility into <laughs> Fred's household. Well, I mean, obviously, she's getting everything from Piper. And Tina and Piper aren't lovers. No, no. I know the way that she weirded sleeping together was very strange, but... As far as I know, they did not have some weird incestuous sister act going on here. No, it was an obsessive relationship. I think we've talked about obsessive friends, obsessive lovers, absolutely. But parents can also be obsessive, overly controlling and obsessive over their children. Yeah. And that's why I'm looking at Tina as somebody who was overly involved and overly obsessed with her sister's life because she considered her more than a sister. She said, like she said, a soulmate, but also it sounds like to me a child she's obsessed with. And to that end, she started just going freaking crazy. For one, Piper broke into Fred's house, the house that they had lived together in Richmond, when she knew that he was taking the children on a vacation because she knew he wouldn't be there. Oh, she my God. flew back to Richmond, broke into his house. I don't know if she was looking for any evidence that would somehow win her back custody, but she ended up taking things that had no monetary value but had sentimental value, things from his family. And then Tina sent mass emails to all of the Jablin's acquaintances. She sent them to his colleagues. In these emails, she accused Fred of using drugs with his students. She was talking about smoking marijuana back in the day. Physically and sexually assaulting Piper and psychologically abusing and manipulating his children. Which is interesting because Tina's on the 48 Hours and she says that she knows for a fact that Fred was emotionally abusive to Piper. But when the host pressed her about the physical abuse, she said that she wasn't sure. She had never witnessed it. She didn't know for sure. But in these emails that she's sending, she is definitively saying that he physically and sexually assaulted Piper. Fred became very paranoid. He was very upset, obviously. He had no idea who was receiving these emails. It was one of those, like, blind copy situations. Yeah. So even if somebody forwarded him the email, he did not know who else was getting it. Yeah. He started going up to people and saying, did you get an email from my crazy ex-sister-in-law? And if they were like, no, dude, what's going on in your life? But then there was other people who said, yeah, it doesn't sound great, but we just figured it had something to do with a bad divorce. But he was starting to get really anxious, which is understandable if this is people reaching out to important people that you work with, people who are on the PTA with you, not a good look. So sad. And it's like so much to carry every day on top of like work and kids. And he's really trying to have a good divorce with Piper. He's really trying to co-parent. He really wants the kids to be okay. But it doesn't seem like that's possible if only one person out of the couple wants that. Yeah. And it seemed like on the surface, maybe they were both moving forward. Piper was dating this guy named Jerry Walters. He appears on 48 Hours as well. He's got kind of like a cowboy thing going on, a little mustache. I could see why she liked him. He seems Jerry calm. Walters. Jerry Walters. He seems very like calming, maybe, for her intense energy. 
she was working as an attorney, but it sounded like it was one of those situations where she met another attorney who had some office space and they weren't really having a practice together. It was like her own independent practice and she just worked out of his office. But that arrangement came to an end when the attorney had to kick her out of the office because a bunch of clients were showing up and demanding to know where Piper was. Turns out that she was agreeing to take people's cases. And I don't know if it was DUI stuff, but like something along those lines. And then she would take their deposit. She would take their money and then she would just ghost them. So they were showing up at the office and he eventually said, all of your clients are showing up here and they're really angry and it's getting in the way of my business. You have to move out. You can't be here anymore. And she got really angry with him because he started just telling them where she lived. <laughs> He's like, uh, I don't have anything to do with her. Here's her address. Go find her at her house. Amazing. Yeah. And she was like, don't you dare give my address away again. He's like, stop fleecing your clients and just do the work. <laughs> yeah. So obviously this is not going very well. And she fell behind in child support payments, eventually owed Fred somewhere in the neighborhood of $10,000 in back payments. Despite this, Fred continued to be generous, very giving with Piper. He allowed her to have all of her visitation, do all of the things she was supposed to do with the kids, always see them. He never withheld the children from their mother, even though she was not holding up her end of the bargain. By the fall of 2004, Fred's life was looking up. The kids were thriving in a stable environment. His neighbors and friends said that he was super involved with all of their sports and extracurriculars. Professionally, he was doing very well at this point. And he had met a new woman named Charlene. And where Piper had kind of been dating a lot, like her and Jerry Walters were on and off and there were several men she was involved with and it was kind of messy. He hadn't really dated anyone. And when he even got involved with Charlene, who was a single mother herself, they really went slow. They dated for several months before they introduced their children. By October of 2004, it seemed clear that this was a relationship that had a future. Of course, when Piper found out that there was another woman getting to know her children, another woman who could be potentially moving into the house she had once lived in with her children and her husband, this further enraged Piper. But the neighbors and everyone who's close to Fred said that he seemed to have emotionally finally put the divorce behind him. All of that anxiety about his career and what Tina was saying and what was happening, it felt like they had gotten to a position where he could finally move forward and, and start getting excited about the future again, which anyone who's gone through a divorce or some other major life-altering event that's hard on your stress levels and your emotions and your general sense of who you are and your well-being knows that you lose a sense of the future. You lose your excitement for life. And it was like Fred was articulating that he was excited again. He was excited about the possibility of love and light and having a supportive spouse and continuing to build his career and watching his children grow into amazing adults. Like it was finally like, oh my gosh, I can look forward again. I'm not mired down in this horrible present. Yeah, and have a partner by his side while doing all that stuff, possibly. Exactly. So he was really excited. So the neighbor said that he decorated like crazy for Halloween and they saw him and the kids out there carving pumpkins together on the front lawn. And life seemed generally good. The neighbor Mel said it all seemed to have worked out. 
Fred was hopeful. We were all hopeful. And it seemed like the worst was over. Unfortunately, the worst hadn't yet happened. Because on October 30th, 2004, in the pre-dawn hours, one day before his favorite holiday, Fred Jablin was shot to death in his own driveway. Ah, oh, this is crazy. Did you know it was Fred? Yeah. He just, he seemed like too good of a guy to murder his wife. Yeah, it's just like, I can't see him risking going away and not seeing his kids grow up to harm someone even as detrimental as her. Yeah. Yeah. She's so damaging to him in his life. And I still couldn't see him ever thinking to do anything like that. Yeah, and that's what people who knew him thought as well. So we are back now to the beginning. The neighbors had heard the gunshots. I think it was just after 6.37 in the morning that they called 911. The police did not see anything initially. And then the neighbors who were walking their dog found Fred's body lying near his door on his driveway. Fred had been shot twice in his back and arm. and. At the time that they found him, he was definitely deceased. There was some conjecture that maybe had he been found earlier and rushed to the hospital, could he have lived? But even the autopsy didn't really clear that up. We don't know. Yeah, there's not, you can't like spend energy. And even the the neighbors that called the police said there was nothing they could have done. It was pitch black out and they didn't know where the gunshots had originated no, from. No, you're going to run outside in the pitch black when you just heard gunshots? That's the opposite of what you're told to do. Even the police couldn't find him. It wasn't until much later. He was pretty set back too. And I think he might have been almost behind a car or something that was parked. So the neighbors who had found him had been really looking around. They were trying to see if anything had happened. And they also said that Fred was a man of habit. So they knew this about him because they were early risers who would walk their dog and they'd see Fred come out sometime between 6.30 and 6.45 every single morning, whether it was a weekend or a weekday, and he would say hi to them and he'd grab his paper. And that was his routine. So the police began to think that the killer knew about this habit and was lying in wait for him to come outside to grab his paper. Now, who would know that this is a habit of his and who would also maybe want to kill him outside and not in the home where the children were? Yeah. Seems like maybe an ex-wife. Did Tina kill him? Could be Tina. We're going to get into that. Okay. Because I feel like that obsessive nature would definitely like, I feel like she could rationalize doing this. That she's right. She's doing something right for the children. Yeah. Yes. It's justice after all. It could entirely be Tina. Now, one of the first policemen on the scene after the second 911 call was a man who lived only a block away from the Jablins, and he's on one of the television programs. And he actually had children who are friends with the Jablin children. So he knows all about this situation. And immediately he's like, did anyone check on the kids? Yeah. So he went into the home, and thankfully all three children were well and alive, and they were asleep. Okay. So not going to be well soon. No, they were physically okay, but they were about to be very unwell emotionally. And they did manage to get the children out of the house and into this police officer's home because they had kids who were friends by going through a back door. So they weren't, they didn't have to witness seeing their father that way. Ugh. At that point, obviously they have some insiders with this police officer who knew about the divorce and they have other neighbors coming out of the woodwork saying, you got to look at Piper. She's the only one who would 
want to kill Fred. And they did entertain that it could be a student who got a really bad grade or Fred had failed them somehow, or maybe it was a colleague he was fighting with. They looked into all of those possibilities as well, but it just was not the case. So going back to Piper, I mean, Piper seemed maybe a little unlikely because she had supposedly been in Texas. So that's some 1,200 miles away. Her son had said that he had talked to her pretty late the night before. So this murder occurred at 6.30 to 6.40 in the morning. And he said he had spoken to her pretty late the night before and she was in Texas. So how the hell did she get all the way to Virginia to commit the murder? But of course, people lie. He didn't know for sure. She was talking on a cell phone. It wasn't like he called a landline. People lie, but cell phone records do not. I think it was about five or six hours after the murder that they were able to get Piper's cell phone records that showed where she had been physically when she was making calls. And it showed that the time that she had called her son the night before, she had not been in Texas, but instead in Richmond, Virginia. Then they traced Piper's phone to Norfolk, Virginia, and then on to Baltimore, which made them believe that Piper had taken a flight back to Houston with a connection in Baltimore based on where the airport was. Okay. And then they went and looked up like what flights that could possibly be that would put her in the air. And they realized that there was a Southwest Airlines flight that was flying from Virginia to Baltimore and then on to Houston. And in fact, she should be landing any minute in Houston. So they don't even know that she's on the plane. So they got the manifest. They needed to see the passenger list and see if there was a Piper Roundtree on this or a Piper Javelin. So they put in all these names and there was a Roundtree on the passenger list. But Andy, it was not Piper. It It was was Tina. Tina. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Okay. But Tina and Piper look a little alike, especially when Piper has blonde hair, which she did not at this time, but... We know that the name of the game is those wigs in the, the <laughs> in the story that we haven't talked about wigs yet. Was it possible that Tina had killed Fred or was it Piper using Tina's ID? I feel like Tina wouldn't let Piper do it. You think she's going to manage it? Uh-huh. Okay. So, well, what they had to do is get the Houston PD to the airport right away. And they had faxed over photos of both Piper and Tina and said you could be looking for either woman. Here's their pictures. But by the time Houston PD got over to the airport, the flight had already deplaned. So ostensibly, they're still in the airport somewhere because it was literally like deplaning into the airport when it happened. But they didn't get to stop the plane and get on to see before people left. So people are just dispersing all over the airports. So they called backup in and they looked everywhere and they came up with nothing. Caught no one. They didn't find Tina. They didn't find... Piper. No, but later on, they would come to believe that the murderer had indeed been on that flight, but disguising themselves with a... (laughs) Wig that looked just like their actual hair. (laughs) Call back, call back to that great episode. Oh my gosh. They thought that maybe she, either Tina or Piper were 
putting on a wig and sunglasses in order to disguise themselves and slipping through law enforcement's fingers. So let's get into why they suspected a wig. I mean, they have so many wigs at their fingertips mid-October. <laughs> they really do. They really do. Like, it's like you could go to any spirit anywhere. <laughs> well, they traced the debit card that had been used to purchase the airline ticket for Ms. Tina Roundtree. And it belonged to a Mr. Jerry Walters, hmm. who happened to be Piper's on-again, off-again Houston boyfriend. And it had also been used in the Richmond area to shop at a CVS and previous to the murder had been used to buy two wigs, one in a bright red color called paprika root. Oh. <laughs> and the other in a frosty blonde, and that's frosty with an eye. Wow. So they're both off-brand strippers. They were called the Stevie, which was supposed to be a sensual layering of the face cut. The Rachel? Yeah, but it was longer. So it was like, yeah, it was like layered the face, but like longer than the Rachel. And Andy, I'm, I got to tell you, these are not your spirit Halloween wigs. These are some fine ass wigs. They cost Jerry Walters $261.73. For both or for each? For both. So each that's one was like 100 bucks. Yeah. I mean, that's not like a real high-end wig, but still, that's more than you're going to get at Spirit Halloween. So maybe like not Spirit, but maybe like the wig shop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, this isn't like made out of real human hair or anything. It's still synthetic. But it's the good synthetic. It's a nice kind of synthetic. The wigs had been shipped to a mailbox and more store that had P.O. boxes and one of those P.O. boxes was registered to both Jerry Walters and Piper Roundtree. They had been delivered only five days before the murder. And the woman recalled this because a woman had called her and asked for them to rush the wigs. It was very imperative they get to her by this time. They had a date. Yes. Yeah, so Jerry Walters claimed that when Piper had been having money problems early on in their relationship, when she was trying to file for bankruptcy, he had given her a debit card to use. And then the day after the murder, she had called him to tell him that the card had been stolen. But for some reason, she did not want him to report it. Oh. And he thought that was really weird. And he called the bank anyway and canceled the card. Now that they suspected that maybe Piper had been wearing a blonde wig when she was using her sister's ID, they decided to approach the ticketing agent and the TSA agent who had been servicing the flight from Houston to Virginia. So at the Houston airport on her flight to Virginia. And the ticketing agent said that Piper's photo did look very familiar, but she had different hair. And they said, do you think she could put a possibly been wearing a blonde wig? And she said, yes. And she said, do you know why I remember her? It's not every day that somebody checks a handgun into their luggage. You did not. <laughs> you did not. She checked the murder weapon. How can you do that? I mean, this gets into it too, is because Jerry Walter's card was also used, apparently on the way to the airport, to buy a gun lock. So I'm guessing that you need to have some special gun lock on your gun to be able to fly with it. 
Unless you're a air marshal. Wow. And so the TSA agent said that he identified the gun as a 38, which just so happens to be the type of weapon that was used to kill Fred Jablin. Honey. This is all falling apart. So now they have the gun lock. They also found out that only a week before, Piper had been at a gun range and she had been using a gun that was a 38 at the gun range that an ex-boyfriend of Tina's had given to Tina. But they believe that it was Piper and not Tina, even though Piper had used Tina's ID to go to sign into the gun range. This is so messy. It's so messy. Is it Tina? Is it Piper? Well, let's just put them both in jail. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So definitely could have been Piper in a wig using her sister's ID that her sister would have definitely given her and her boyfriend's debit card. Or it could be Tina maybe even wearing a wig herself to throw them off by thinking Piper was wearing a wig or they're both walking down really confusing paths that will obviously create reasonable doubt for any jury and Piper's an attorney. And that maybe Tina did it and she just used Jerry Walter's debit card, which obviously Piper had in her possession. And she said, here you go, you take this. And now it's confusing whether it's you or me. Well, the police decided it would come down to who had the strongest alibi because one of them had to be seen in Houston. Now, they're both saying that they were in Houston and Piper was kind of participating with the police, but she wasn't making any sense. Her story kept changing. And Tina was straight up like, fuck you. Come back with a warrant. Don't talk to me. I got nothing to say. Like, aggressive. (laughs) Aggressively, like, they're like, well, why did you have a plane ticket? Why were you going to Richmond? She's like, I don't have anything to say to you. You can't prove I was on that plane, is what she said. Doesn't matter. You can't prove it. They're like, we can prove that somebody using your name and your (laughs) ID was on that plane, ma'am, and checked a gun. She's like, wasn't me. (laughs) Wasn't me. Sneaking a gun onto a plane. Wasn't Wasn't me. me. Had that frosty (laughs) wig on. Wasn't me. Yeah. Wow. Honey. They're like, okay, we're going to just have to figure out if either of these women were seen. Because they're also, they're investigating this in Houston, where the two women are, but also in Virginia. And they were having a really hard time placing either of the women anywhere in Richmond. Like, whoever was out there murdering was keeping a low profile. So they're trying to focus now on process of elimination. Who was actually in Houston at the time that somebody was taking these flights? Yeah. And Piper claimed that there was no way that she could have been on either of these flights because on Friday night when the flight to Richmond was happening, she was in a bar called The Volcano. And she was a little embarrassed, but she had had some sort of thing with a guy who was married. They had gotten drunk and maybe gone home together. She was just embarrassed about it. She didn't want to talk about it, which, you know, I have to say that this doesn't sound counter to some of her behaviors. Yeah. But it is still a pretty shaky alibi. Also, like now you're embarrassed about having affairs because it doesn't (laughs) seem like you were for the past fucking 10 years. Yeah. And she said that the next day when she was supposedly on the flight back, She had gone to visit an attorney that she had worked with before and was in his office talking about something law-related. And so she said, you can check those out. Those are my alibis. And they're like, oh, we certainly will. 
These alibis were not great. We'll get into that later, exactly why they kind of fell apart. But now let's move on to Tina. Now, Tina refused to say where she was doing anything. She said, I wasn't on the plane, but she also wasn't giving them any evidence that would prove. She wasn't saying like, here's where I was and what I was doing. She wouldn't say shit. But they did go to her clinic and they found out that especially on Friday and I think on Saturday as well, on both times that Tina Roundtree was flying on these planes and they do absolutely know that she was checked in and she took that flight. This Tina Roundtree was in her clinic and she was alibied by dozens of people, people who worked there and patients she saw that day. So now the police think it was Piper with Tina's ID. But wouldn't that still make Tina an accomplice? Absolutely. 100%. Who gave your sister your ID? Tina. Yeah. And it's her gun too, isn't it? Yes, but they never recovered the gun. They couldn't produce the 38 that this ex-boyfriend of Tina's had given Tina. So that's not looking great. But they never did find the gun. The actual murder weapon. Yeah. Yes. And later on, a very close friend of Tina's did come forward and say that Tina confessed that her sister had indeed been the one to go and murder Fred, but that she had no idea that she had taken her ID and that she was not involved in the planning of the crime. However, after she did it, she did everything in her power to make sure that Piper got away with it, including getting rid of a purse and a wig. And they believe that potentially the gun had been in that purse. Huh. Maybe. But we don't know because she could have also just tossed it somewhere in Virginia because I don't know if anyone recalled it getting checked on the way home. Yeah. Okay. So in any case, the gun's gone and this friend of Tina's did come to say that she didn't believe she had any involvement in the plot of the murder, even though her sister used her ID. But she certainly, certainly was trying to help her get away with it. Meanwhile, all this is going on. Piper flew back to Virginia, using her own ID this time, for a custody hearing on November 8th. This was 10 days after the murder had happened, and she was trying to get custody of her children to bring them back to Texas. And she was not understanding why they just wouldn't automatically give her her children, as she is their mother. And obviously, Michael Jablin is saying in his will, he wants me to be the guardian and he had sole physical custody. So does that transfer to me? Also, aren't the police looking at her as a suspect in the murder of my brother? Please do not hand my nephew and nieces over to the woman that killed their father. Absolutely. November 8th was just not Piper's day because not only did the judge award custody to Michael... She was also arrested for Fred's murder only moments after leaving the courthouse. So they got her while she was there. It was actually great for them because they didn't have to extradite her from Texas. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Virginia's for lovers. Stay a while. Like, like 20 to life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Piper's trial began in February of 2005. And I can bet that you can bet what the defense was. I was having an affair and I definitely wasn't there. <laughs> that was part of it. But they threw Tina under the bus. Shut up. Uh-huh. They insinuated heavily that it was Tina who had done the crime. And Tina's on 48 Hours and the host asked her, 
they pretty much made it sound like you were the murderer. What do you think about that defense? What did you think about it? And she's like, well, I thought it was stupid. Obviously, it's not true. But they were just trying to create reasonable doubt for the jury. And I understand that. So I don't care. Uh, what? Yeah, she said she didn't care. I would be like, I'm sorry. You are not coming for Thanksgiving this year. <laughs> yeah, and like... Even if you get out of jail, you can't come because you tried to accuse me of murder. After all I did for you, Piper. <laughs> Wild. Wow. It was really funny because also I forget if it was a TSA agent or um, a ticketing agent, but somebody said that they looked at Tina's ID and made a comment about, oh, Tina, that's my sister's name or my daughter's name or something and how it was common these days or when they had named their kid that or something, it wasn't as common. And she's like, oh, I know. She's like, there were so many Tinas in my class, but my sister Piper got the good name. Like mentioned it. Isn't that weird if it was Piper? What a psycho. <laughs> yeah, so weird. They totally said it was Tina. The goal was definitely to create reasonable doubt, to make the jury think that just like you and I did at the beginning, which is like totally could have been Tina. Tina was outspoken about her hatred of Fred. Even on shows like Dateline and 48 Hours, she was still... After he's been murdered, she's saying the worst things about him. It's horrible. Yeah, but she didn't, she doesn't give a shit about anyone, obviously, except her sister, Piper, which is weird. Yeah. And so she was also saying, they were saying it's her ID. They were saying it was her gun that her ex-boyfriend gave to her. Everyone said that they saw a blonde woman. And obviously that's not Piper, who's a brunette. Tina had never denied it. She had never really said, she had said she wasn't on that plane, but she wasn't getting on the stand and saying anything. So they're like, of course, they don't want the prosecutor to question Tina because she'd go, no, of course I didn't kill him. So Tina's not taking the stand. Houston lawyer, Martin McVeigh, who had worked with Piper. So this was the guy that she said had worked with her. Now he got on the stand and he did say that she was in his office at exactly that time. So it could not have possibly been Piper coming back on that flight because based on when the flight landed a little late and traffic, there's no way she would have made it to his office in time. However, there was a conflicting early police report where he was not sure when she had been to his office. Essentially, either she could have come the day after when she returned, or like or it was like very confusing. It was like the day after she returned or like the day before, but there was confusion and he had given a contradictory police report before saying it was a different date. So he's testifying for her. I don't know if he was willingly lying or if it was one of those things where Piper had convinced him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, no, I was there on this day and you have to believe me. And that was exactly what she had done with the bar scenario. So it sounds like the night she got back, which by the way, the police were chasing her all over town. They had like gone to her house. She wasn't there. They went to Tina's house. Turns out they had been at a hotel when she first got in. And there was all this confusion about where Tina was, where Piper was. They finally, like, tailed her to a pet store where she was buying worms for her pet frog or something. <laughs> Some sort of bugs for her pet frog. What? Yeah. And then she, like, came out of the Petco and, like, sped off. And so they're having a hard time keeping track of her. And it seems like that night, that same night she got back, the same night as the murder, she went to a bar. And... There was a guy there who was a regular. He was there almost every night. He was just a regular client who, it was his neighborhood place. She struck up some sort of situation, conversation with him. 
So a couple days after that, because that was Saturday night, she goes back into the bar and she says, this guy I dated was stabbed and he was stabbed on Friday night and that was the night I was talking to you. So I, I have a notary public with me right now. And will you sign this notarized paper saying that you were with me on Friday night at this bar? So originally the guy was like, oh yeah, that was the night you and I were talking, right? And he's like, She's like, yes, it was Friday night. And he was like, okay, yeah, because I, I was there talking to you. We talked until past midnight. Yeah, for sure. And so he signed it. But then later on, he was thinking and he was like, wait a minute, that wasn't Friday night. That was Saturday night. But like he's drunk both times. And so he was so worried that he had lied that he went to the bartender and the bartender hadn't been working Friday night. He'd only been working Saturday night. And he's like, you were with this woman on Saturday night and I wasn't here. So there was something about it, but maybe the bartender was there both nights, but the bartender who was sober basically knew. And so he went to the police and he rescinded her alibi, essentially. Good for him. That's hard to follow up with and do, I feel like. I feel like it'd be much easier to just kind of like sit back and be like, whatever, I'm just gonna let this play out. Like, I don't want to yes. get more involved, you know? I think I'd be very stressed out though that my testimony had somehow freed a killer or convicted an innocent person, I'd want to make sure somehow I got the the details correct. Yeah. Which is what he did because he was freaked out by it. I think that guy came on the stand, but as a prosecutorial witness, because they were saying she was trying to force an alibi that wasn't there. The other guy, Martin McVeigh, was very much on her side saying that he saw her. There was no way. So they've got one alibi witness that seemed more legit, or at least he wasn't taking it back. And then one that was saying very specifically, she tried to trick me into giving her an alibi. So her attorney would later say that there was a lot of circumstantial evidence against Piper. And he thought that the only way to really make their case was to put Piper on the stand, even though many times defense attorneys are loath to do that. However, Piper's an attorney, so there's a feeling that she is going to be able to hold her own in this case and maybe convince the jury that it was not actually her who was there in Virginia pulling the trigger. I'm going to say that that did not work out so well. The jury was left with a very bad taste in their mouths. Piper tried to explain away the cell phone location by saying that Tina and she often shared the phone, that they shared each other's cell phones. She tried to like explain all this stuff away, but it came across as very sketchy. And there was a lot of times where she just said, I don't recall. And it's stuff that you would know if you weren't trying to get out of something. She also cried on the stand saying that she loved Fred and that they had been great co-parents, that she had just paid him some alimony. And she wouldn't have done that, obviously, if she knew he was going to die, that she would never take away her kid's dad because she firmly believed that children need both parents. The jurors were on the 48 Hours I watched, and they said that Piper taking the stand was the nail in her coffin. They said that she came across as totally disingenuous, that she seemed like somebody who could turn on the tears and then turn them off just as quick. Yeah. So I, I bet you can figure out what verdict they came to in only a handful of hours. I'm going to say guilty. Yes. Crocodile tears. <laughs> yeah. Beyond the crocodile tears, they said that the cell phone records really sealed the deal for them. That was the big piece of evidence. Yeah. I believe that Tina's cell phone was still in Houston at the time as well. 
Yeah. So what's going on with Tina? Because she's an accomplice, technically. Yes. And basically, law enforcement and the jury also thought that it sounded like Tina would do anything for her sister, including clean up the murder and become the scapegoat. But they did not believe that she had actually murdered. Everyone believed it was Piper who pulled the trigger. So we'll get to Tina in a second. The jury recommended the sentence of life in prison for Piper and the judge obliged. Though Piper would have eligibility for parole after 15 or so years, but one of the jurors said that they recommended a true life sentence because, quote, we didn't want her to ever come back into her children's lives because it would be like reliving the murder for them. So Piper is now 63 years old, and it doesn't appear that she will be getting out of prison anytime soon. Her bid for parole was denied in 2020, and then again this past April of 2023, the parole board issued the following reasons for the denial. Quote, the board concludes that you should serve more of your sentence prior to release on parole. Release at this time would diminish the seriousness of the crime. You need further participation in institutional work or educational programs to indicate your positive preparation towards re-entry in society. Wow. I mean, I think that's a very fair evaluation. It sounds like it to me. It sounds like maybe she's also one of those people that is still denying involvement. And that's what it means that you have not come to terms with what you did and you're not admitting to the seriousness of what you did. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Did she ever wear the paprika? Wig? <laughs> so one of the, I think that the blonde wig was never found. And so I think that was the one that they got rid of. And the red wig was found in Tina's house, I think. Oh. Paprika root. Speaking of Tina, she was convicted of tampering with evidence and she was given nine months probation. Wow. Tina got off. She got off on it. Yep, yep, yep. Well, she didn't get away with it for very long because according to 48 Hours, she passed away in 2020. I tried to look up what, like her obituary to see if it said anything about when she died or how she died other than 48 Hours had it as like a last note that she passed away in 2020. And the only obituary I found was like definitely, it wasn't that it was the wrong one. It was the right one, but it said she died in 2009 for some reason. And I don't think 48 Hours would get that wrong. Weird. I know. There was like two sites that said 2009. In either case, it doesn't appear that Tina is with us any longer, which is a shame because it does sound like she had a couple kids. So both Tina and Piper were willing to throw away their relationship with their own children for revenge. I think Piper thought she was going to get away with it. The funniest thing about this is that she should have been smarter for sure. Tina, I think, was on 48 Hours saying, like, of course, Fred won, like, in the custody situation because she was like, he's a professor and he's just really good at arguing. It's like, she's a freaking attorney. <laughs> like, like, what do you mean he is some, a professor of organizational communication has an up on a licensed attorney? Uh... Like, it's, it's just, it was clear that these are two women that were always going to make themselves the victims. Yes. And everything was somebody else's fault, and poor Fred became the actual victim. Yeah, even though he was, I mean, as I talked about all of those things that he did for Piper the whole time, because there's other people in the media, namely Piper and Tina, that are just saying he was this horrible, abusive man. And it sounds like all he did was try to help Piper. Well, the kids grew up with Michael, and I think, I mean, 
gosh, this didn't happen super duper young, like far ago. So I'm sure that they're still very young. I mean, at least young adults. So wishing them the best of success. I, as a rule, try not to look up the children who probably do not want to be associated with their parents' murder story anymore. But if you're out there thinking of you. In conclusion, bringing the murder weapon and checking it in officially on your way to do the murdering is a pretty easy way for people to remember you and the murder weapon, and thus probably not a great idea. Yeah, I would say it's definitely not a good idea. And it's also not a good idea to buy your disguise on someone who you know's credit card. Like, just use cash to buy wig. Use cash to buy costumes all the time. I think that's just a good general rule of thumb. <laughs> yeah, and actually just go to the spirit and hand them 20 bucks and you'll get a, a whole variety of wigs. <laughs> And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Happy almost Halloween. Love you guys. Bye.